We're all ready to go here. You have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Romans this morning. <clears throat> Last week, as you know, we uh, started, we, we came through the book of Acts. And I showed you how that the book of Acts, and uh, I, I don't know any simpler way I could outline the book of Acts than what I did last week. And if you're putting the Bible together in time, and maybe you can't get it all right now, but in time, that uh, breakdown will be invaluable to you of understanding how the book of Acts uh, lays itself out. Because, as I said last week, the book of Acts, without a doubt, is the key to breaking down the New Testament, <coughs> really breaking down the whole Bible. It it's such a valuable bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament that you just can't learn the Bible without it. I don't know what else to tell you. If there's any book that, as far as <clears throat> putting the Bible together, and I'm going to say it again, I've said it a number of times last week, and I'm going to keep on saying it. If there's any book that is absolutely necessary for you to learn, to learn how to put your Bible together, it is the book of Acts. But today we're going to look at the book of Romans. And let me just say this about the book of Romans. <clears throat> if there's any book in the Bible that you need to know to help you put your uh, life together as far as uh, your relationship with Christ, it is the book of Romans. The book of Romans is equally easily important, but for a different reason. So we're going to focus on the book of Romans today. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, at this point, as we've been coming through the Bible... Uh, we're going to stop for just a moment, and I want to, you know, I've been waiting to do this till we got to this point, once we got the book of Acts out of the way, and now I want to just take a minute and I want to talk to you about the books that Paul writes. Last week we got introduced to the Apostle Paul. We know now <clears throat> that the Apostle Paul is the Apostle to the church. We know that he has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. He's not one of the twelve. He's the 13th apostle that is designated to the, to the Gentile nations. His life is so dedicated to that that when God gave him the gospel, and when you come through the book of Acts, you don't see this as you're coming through it, but when Paul gets saved in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 9, you lose track of him for a while. And then he pops back up, and you, as you're looking at it, it just looks like it's kind of maybe uh, one or two chapters. But in actuality, uh, you've, you've come through a few years here. And what Paul did is that Paul goes down to Arabia. We know he's in Arabia for three years. The book of Galatians tells us this. And during that time in the book of Arabia, or in, in, the, in the time he's in Arabia, he begins to get from God. He's obviously on Mount Sinai, the same place. That's where Mount Sinai is the same place that all the great patriarchs in the Old Testament were, he gets revealed to him the body mystery. Now, I kind of underhandedly gave you a clue last week by talking about Romans chapter 16 in the last three or four verses, just hoping that some of you would, in your time this week, would take a look at that verse. But the body mystery is something that God uh, never revealed to anybody. The body mystery, very simply, is the concept of the New Testament church. And the New Testament church is a concept that God never told anybody about. And after the book of Acts uh, is moving through, 
and Paul gets saved, God takes Paul out of the way and reveals to him the gospel of the grace of God or the body mystery. Paul carries this as such a burden that he refers to this as my gospel. Not because he's being arrogant or taking anything away from God, but because he understands that he is the only one that God gave this to. Paul made reference to this many, many times that his gospel wasn't, didn't come from man. It came directly from God. And he is the man who begins to establish the church. So therefore, the books that he writes, as well as the order of the books that he writes, are very important. After the book of Acts, you have the book of Romans. Then you have the book of First and Second Corinthians. Then you have the book of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. You'll find that when Paul writes these books, he writes these books to churches. And within these books, you're going to find the doctrine of the church, the things that are important to the church, the things the church needs to watch out for, Everything the church needs to have to operate successfully is found in the books that Paul writes to the churches. It starts with the book of Romans. We're going to see that in just a moment. Then Paul writes, in fact, Paul writes the seven churches. <coughs> John writes the seven churches. And uh, you're going to find that uh, Paul gives us great insight into the doctrines of the church. Then he writes some books to individuals. He writes 1 Timothy, he writes 2 Timothy, he writes Titus, and he writes Philemon. Those are men. Those aren't churches. Those are New Testament Christian men. And in those books, you're going to find personal instruction, personal doctrine for your life and my life, not as a church, but as an individual. And in those books, you're going to find everything that you need. If you have a desire to be a pastor, you're going to find the requirements. You're going to find how in those books what the church is told to look for when it raises up leadership. You're going to find everything that you need about your attitude, your service, and the ministry on a personal level uh, for an individual man or an individual woman in those books. Then he writes the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, he lays out the doctrinal understanding uh, to the nation of Israel. And those books are very important that you understand not only the books and how they divide out, but the order of the books that you find them. Now, the book of Romans is, is a great book. I, I don't know of any book in the Bible that I dislike more than the book of Romans. You know what Martin Luther said one time? Martin Luther said one time, I'd like to light my fire with the book of James. You know why I said that? Because the book of James has in it some things that when Martin Luther broke from the Roman Catholic Church, that the Roman Catholic Church were taken and throwing Martin Luther's face, and Martin Luther really didn't know how to deal with them on it because the book of James uh, is, a, is a book that is a transitional book also, and they were driving him nuts with the book of James. So you know what he said? He said, someday in frustration, I'd like to light my fire with the book of James. Now, he didn't mean that. But he's showing the frustration. If there's any book that frustrates me in all of the Bibles, the book of Romans. You know why? Because the book of Romans is the one book in the Bible that will show you exactly how spiritual you really are. That's the book of Romans. That's the book of Romans. 
You know, we always see the, I've learned this over the years, and I, you know, we always see in the, uh, we always, in the, in the commercial, I saw a commercial last week, it was a goofy commercial, but it's funny, and it was the guy that goes in, uh, you know, it's, it's picture in the world where a guy goes in and he, he, he's in a bar scene, you know, like the world, you know, and he's in the bar scene there and he goes in and he, he sees this beautiful woman, you know, so he goes over to this beautiful woman and he says, hey, he says, don't tell me, your name's Angel. It has to be, because somebody as beautiful as you had to come down from heaven. Is that what Jimmy used on you the first time you met, was it? She looks up then and says, oh, are you trying to pick me up? He looks back, honey, angel, I ain't picking you up. I'm picking you out. I watched that and I thought to myself, is there really women out there that fall for those lines? But you know what? Put that as, oh, there is? Oh, she did? What'd you, what was your line, Joe? What was your line? Okay. But you know what I've learned over the years? A lot of God's people are pickup artists. They pick up a few cute quirks about the Bible they pick up a few nice little spiritual sayings and they throw them around to want to impress people like the pickup artist going out to the bar likes to do it to impress ladies. Now the truth of the matter is a woman worth her salt knows that a guy that operating that way hasn't got much substance to him. And the truth of the matter is a Christian that operates that way doesn't have much substance to him. If you want a book that anytime you're feeling spiritual, if you want a book to take the wind out of your sails and to keep you where you need to be, it's the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a hard book. It's a hard book. And I guess that's why a lot of people don't like to read it. I think that's why so many people don't study it. And I think that's why a lot of God's people, not most of God's people, don't know anything about it. And I hope the book's a challenge to you. I hope the book brings you away today looking at it from the right attitude. But I'm telling you, most Christians operate just like the world. They pick up a few key lines. They pick up some spiritual insight. They pick up the little cliches that they want to use. But they never really fully understand the content and the weight of the Word of God. Now the job of the church is to teach you that. And that's why... We have to deal with the book of Romans just like we have to deal with every other book in the Bible. We see it as its importance. Now that's why the book of Romans is the next book after uh, the book of Acts. Because in the, book of, in the book of Romans, the body mystery is revealed. Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 9. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, he has written everything that, he, that, he has, that he's going to write. The book of Romans is written around 58 A.D. There's no way you can get an exact date on these, but it's certainly between Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 when Paul's doing his writings. And it's an incredible book because Romans is Paul's doctrinal statement to the church. That's why it's so crucial. You know, I've told you this before that all the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written to you. And of course, there's no book in the Bible that lays that out clearer than the book of Romans because the Bible rule is simple. If any verse in the Bible, in either testament, that you read, 
does not contradict or deny something found in the Pauline epistles, then it can be applied to a New Testament Christian. There's hundreds of things in the Old Testament that line up to what Paul says. And when you read them, then, and you know they line up to the doctrinal statement that you have got for the church, then you can apply them. And this is the difference between rightly dividing the word of truth and not rightly dividing the word of truth. And I'm telling you, there, but when you take those things that don't line up and you put them into the church, that's where you're going to get into heresy. And that's why the body of Christ has so much heresy. I don't understand today why God's people insist. And I, I don't understand it. I don't understand. It must be just the times that we live in right before Christ comes back. But I do not understand why God's people absolutely insist on trying to serve God without learning His Word. I, I just don't understand that. I just don't comprehend that. And I know the Word of God takes labor, it takes patience, and it takes time. And I know learning the Word of God is something that doesn't just come overnight. And I know there's a process to it, and that process is something that everybody has to go through. And I know that we live in a generation now that has no patience. We want it right now. And I know that once we get down the road in our Christian life, it's hard for us because of the pride factor to admit that we don't maybe know the Bible like we should. And yet I also know that our old sin nature, that lazy streak we all have, it's easier to pretend. It's easier to pick up the lines and go out and try to pick up a gal than it is to meet somebody and build a real working relationship with them. You know why? Because of your motive, your intent. You're not, you don't really want a commitment with somebody. You just want a one-night stand that will satisfy you temporarily, and then you'll go find another one. God's people are the same way. They don't want to take the time to build a lasting relationship with God, so they pick up a lot of one-liners that really doesn't have much substance to them. And when Paul writes the book of Romans, he sets the baseline for defining every New Testament doctrine that we need and for us to understand why we need it. You know, I've said this for years. I don't really care what a person believes about the Bible. As long as you don't attack me for where I'm at, I'll never attack you for what you believe. But I'll tell you this, I, I don't care why a per, what, person, what a person believes. What always interests me is, do they know why they believe it? And there's the real test between somebody who just uses the old pickup lines versus somebody who really studies the Scriptures. And that's why God's people today insist on trying to serve God. I, you know what? And I've I, I got to say that before I go any farther because I forgot to say this. And I'm not talking to you young Christians. We've got a bunch of people here that have just gotten saved. When I talk to people in general about hard things about the Bible, I give, the, I give somebody the first five years of their saved I don't, even, I, don't even, I don't even talk to them about that because I realize that it takes at least that long to really get your feet on the ground. <clears throat> so I understand going in that if you've been saved five years or less or maybe you've been saved longer than that but you've just started really getting into the Word of God in your life, I understand where you're at and I'm not even talking to you. But let me tell you what, there's a lot of God's people out there today that, that believe a lot of things that if you threw an open Bible in front of their face, they'd fold up like a broken accordion. Why? Because they don't know why they believe what they believe. That's why Romans is a tough book. That's why Romans beats me up. 
Boy, I tell you what, you can pretend to be spiritual, you can pretend to have it all together, and it only takes going through the book of Romans to show you and I how shallow we really are. Because that is the doctrinal book. It is the book where Paul defines his doctrinal statement for what the church is supposed to believe. And that's why it's found right after the book of Acts. Because you've got all that stuff laid out, and the first book is a book of Romans. And it's Romans uh, that, uh, it's an incredible book. Now, the book of Romans has 16 chapters in it. And in those 16 chapters, you're going to find every doctrine that is given to the church defined for you. And if you want to find the beginning of definition, we've been talking a lot on Thursday night about definitive verses. Romans is a definitive book in one way, just as the book of Acts is a definitive book in another way. Where the book of Acts maybe will define for you the church as far as history is concerned, the book of Romans for you will define every church doctrine that you're going to get into the rest of your life. And don't forget, it's doctrine, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, all Scripture is given by inspiration to God and is profitable. And the first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. And that is what is different between the old Philadelphian church and the Laodicean church. The old style Christians versus the new style. No doctrine. Romans is a book of doctrine. It's the Christian handbook on doctrine. In those 16 chapters, you'll find the righteousness of God defined. You'll find faith defined. You'll find the truth of God defined. You'll find the gospel of God defined. You'll find the power of God defined. You'll find New Testament salvation defined. You'll find the doctrine, the great doctrine of justification defined. Ask the average Christian. Ask the average Christian to explain to you the doctrine of justification. In most cases, I asked a preacher one time that, and his answer was justification. It kind of means like just as I, just if I had never sinned. Now, he thought he said something. To me, that's a great pickup line. Has nothing to do with the book of Romans. If that's all the depth of you understand justification and the doctrine of it, we got some problems here. The book of Romans lays out the greatest subject in the Bible is the doctrine of justification. It lays out and defines the doctrine of your glorified body. It lays out the doctrine of, as a New Testament Christian, what our job is in eternity. It lays out the doctrine of eternal security. It lays out and defines the doctrine of biblical predestination. Predestination is not wrong. It's just defined wrong by everybody that uses it. It defines the doctrine of biblical election. It defines the doctrine of the new nature versus the old nature. It defines the doctrine for you, doctrine for you parents raising your kids of the age of accountability or the so-called fabled, fabled age of accountability, blows that right out the window. It defines the doctrine of Christian service. It defines the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of ministry, the doctrine of separation. It defines the doctrine of the nation of Israel. It defines the doctrine of civil government. And it defines the doctrine of the teaching of what it really means to be a real strong Christian and being used of God in the ministry or defining the ministry for you and for I. And of 200 other things are in there. Now, the next thing I want you to see is this, and this is very important. 
he called the book the Epistle to the Romans. Now, a casual reader might think that he's talking to the church that, that exists in the city of Rome. Now, I found this out, and I got looking at this, and, I thought, and all of a sudden it was one of those things that just kind of where the lights come on. I don't know if you ever checked this out or not. When you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, and some of you may not be able to get this right now, that's okay. It'll, it'll, it'll hit you in time. You go to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and when Paul opens up that book, he says to the church at Corinth. He goes to Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, he says the church at Galatia. You go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he says the saints at Ephesus. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the saints at Philippi. He says Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, the saints at Colossae. And he says in 1 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 1, he says the church at Thessalonica. But you know what? Watch this. When it comes to Romans chapter 1, when he greets them, he doesn't say, he doesn't say uh, the church at Rome. He doesn't say the saints at Rome. He says to all that be in Rome. You know why? Because Paul understood the great lesson in Daniel chapter 2 of Daniel's image. That the last, the last kingdom on this earth was going to be the Roman Empire. Paul understood something that the 20th century theologians and most Christians and 99.999% of all the preachers in the world could never get because they don't believe that book. That the last empire on this earth is going to be the Roman Empire. And he didn't write it to the church at Rome. He didn't write it to the saints at Rome. He wrote it to the saints that are in Rome because he knew that the Roman Empire was never going to cease. And he wrote a book that is just as just as pertinent to you and me in 2005 A.D. as it was to the men he wrote it to in 58 A.D. You know why? Because if you know anything about the Bible, you know that you are living in the Roman Empire today. If you know your Bible. You know that in 108 B.C., Rome took over the world, and Rome never has given up control of the world. I don't care what Communism does, the Muslim do, or who anybody else in this world, the real enemy, we saw it last week, will always be, always has been Rome. And Rome, according to Daniel chapter 2, has never lost power. So when Paul wrote to the uh, saints in Rome, he didn't say at Rome. He's not talking about the city. He's talking about every born-again child of God that wakes up every morning understanding from the Bible standpoint, you are under the domination of Rome the devil's church, the devil's government, the devil's religion, and it permeates everything in our society. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is go back a few short weeks and look at the death of Paul Pepperoni or whatever his name was and see how this whole world catered to Rome. Baptist churches, Baptist churches lowering their flags at half mask for the leader of the church of the Antichrist. Boy, I'll tell you what, if Rome, and Paul understood exactly what he said, so to me, when I see the book of Rome, Romans, it sets apart from all the other books. It's not written at somebody, it's written to somebody that is in something up to their eyeballs. That's you and me, if you know your Bible. I think the expression is, all roads lead to Rome. You know, back in Job chapter 41, and I've told you before that the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament that lay out the devil are Job chapter 40, Job chapter 41. The two greatest chapters in the New Testament are Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. But the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament that lay out for you and for me 
and lay out the, the devil in the Old Testament is Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. In Job chapter 41, verse 13, he says this. He makes this statement. It says, who can discover the face of his garment? Talking about the devil. The answer to that is nobody without a King James 1611 authorized version. That's why the whole world today, Christian world, and this is why Romans will eat you alive. When I said earlier that Romans wasn't my favorite book, I was trying to make a point. It is my favorite book. What am I? It's my favorite book today. Usually whatever book I'm studying that day is my favorite book. But I like getting beat up, you see. I've come to the point in my life that I love the Word of God so much that even the bitter things are sweet to me. I'll take it. Well, I know that book will flay me out. That book will take me down to the line. Boy, I'm telling you, it will. It will. It will. I mean, when I find a Christian, or I meet a Christian, that, you know, come to the place, been saved 15, 20, 30 years, you know, you meet them all the time. And I, in the course of talking to them, don't understand the book of Romans, you know, I know what I got. You ever drive down the road on a nice hot afternoon, and you're over there in the sky, you see those big hot air balloons? That's what, that's what you got. You got a bunch of hot air and a big balloon in it. You know how those balloons get around? By being blown with the wind. And the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that those kind of Christians get blown about by every wind of doctrine. That's why they don't have any stability in life. They don't know why they believe what they believe. They just exist. And wherever the current Christian temperature trade winds blow, that's where you go. And that's what's happened to Christianity. You know why? Because nobody can discover the face of his garment. That's why. And that's why the book of Romans is so crucial. And that's why the book of Romans is a tough book. And that's why sometime in your life you're going to have to learn it. But there'll be some blood in the process. That book will beat you up. when it. I mean, the whole Bible will in, in some cases, but there ain't no book in the world that lays you out flat, lays me out flat like the book of Romans. I always give people the Romans test because Romans is the book. When I look for a young man or a young lady someplace, you know, they can really do some things, I watch Romans is my my decree. Romans is the book that I look for. And I'll tell you what, we're going to come through this chapter by chapter, and there's no way I'm going to be able to give you everything that's in it, but I, you, when I'm done, you'll understand a lot better than you do. Now let's talk about Romans chapter 1. I'm going to define these chapters for you. Romans chapter 1 is the greatest chapter in, or in the Bible that tells you how Gentiles think. You know why Romans chapter 1 is the first chapter and he picked on the Gentiles? Because you and I are Gentiles, and the body of Christ is a Gentile church. The church is a Gentile church. So the first thing he lays out is everything about the way you and I as Gentiles, and Gentiles, there's two kinds of people in this world, three kinds of people. There's, there's Jews, there's Gentiles, and then there's Christians. Now see, I'm a Gentile by birth. I'm a European. My heritage is English, Welsh. I'm, a, I'm, I'm from Europe. But once I got saved, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. I ceased to be a Gentile. Now I'm a Christian. And when I stepped out of being a Gentile, I don't care about Gentile things anymore. So I can look at all these nasty things written about Gentiles in here and just laugh. I don't take them personal. You know why? Because I ain't one of them anymore. Amen. Only by birth. And I agree with it. I agree with what he says here. But Romans chapter 1 is a great. You know, the greatest commentary, the greatest commentary 
I ever read on Romans chapter 1 was not written by a saved man. And I've written, I've read a lot of books on Romans. The greatest statement on Romans chapter 1 that I ever read in my life that rang so true to Romans chapter 1 was never written by a preacher. It was never written by a theologian. A theologian. It was never written. It was written by an unsaved man who right now as we speak is burning in hell. You know what his name was? Voltaire. Voltaire it comes out of Europe during the Renaissance, after the Renaissance. <clears throat> He's one of the fathers of the German rationalist movement, the liberals today, the ACLU and all that, and all the stuff in America that is so terrible to Christianity starts there. You know what Voltaire, Voltaire said? He said this, and boy, no truer statement was ever made. He said, God made man in his own image. And then man returned to favor and made God in man's image. I thought to myself, amen, brother. I don't think you knew you got the truth when you got that. I don't think you got that from going to Sunday school because Voltaire was an atheist. He hated God and hated the Bible. But you know what that proves to me? That proves to me it doesn't matter how, how godless you are and how much you hate God or the Word of God. That book is the absolute standard and it runs the way it runs and you can't get out from under it if you wanted to. So you go to hell hanging onto your bedpost, screaming that God made man his own image and then man returned to favor and made God. In. And that's what Romans chapter 1 is about. That's what it says. That's exactly what it's about. Romans chapter 1 is then, when it talks about the Gentiles, it says, And he changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. There it is. Now Romans chapter 1 is a great chapter that answers a lot of questions. For the child of God, if you learn it. <clears throat> now, we live in our society today that Christians always look, have that puzzled look on their face. Oh, that surprised look on their face. And I'm telling you, the reason why that is because they don't know anything about Romans. Romans won't let you get caught unaware. Romans will always prepare. You expect Romans chapter 1. If you understand Romans chapter 1, you understand. All this thing today, you know, and I hear it all the time <coughs> about homosexuality and lesbianism and all of those things, you know. And the bottom line is, uh, you know, the issue is, is it sin? Is it a sickness? Or is it an eternal lifestyle? Well, Romans chapter 1 answers that question for you. There are 30 things in Romans chapter 1 that a homosexual becomes, and they ain't good. I don't have to go get somebody's book on it. I don't have to meet a medical report on it. I don't have to go and get a book on an alternative lifestyles. I got a book that tells me this is the way Gentiles think. And when Gentiles go through this process of debunking God and throwing them out and worshiping the creation more than the creator, this is where man goes. In our schools today, there's a big debate again over the evolution issue. Last couple of months... Kansas has been getting kicked six ways from Sunday because there's some old-fashioned hayseed out of touch with reality people that just want to believe that God created and can't get out of the mud of Kansas and can't get out of the hayseed and can't get the hay out of their hair and out of their ears and out of their eyes to see the great big marvelous world that's out there. Well, I don't have to go to Kansas to know that evolution is wrong and the Bible is right. I don't have to go to Kansas to understand this debate. Romans chapter 1 tells me why Gentiles go that way. And by the way, the concept of evolution came from a Gentile. It came from a Gentile. It didn't come from Shem. Shem's got his problems. 
But believing something as stupid as evolution isn't one of them. I look at my government. My government's in a mess. My government is absolutely upside down. I mean, if there ever was a time in history when he needed to plow the whole thing under and start over again, it's now. That ain't going to happen. But I'm not surprised for it because I understand how when Gentiles get in power, how they operate. The ACLU, the liberals, the news media, I'm not surprised at the way they do it. Why? Romans chapter 1 tells me exactly how Gentiles operate. It tells me how Gentiles think. That's why I'm not surprised that the United States of America, all of us Gentiles, our four biggest holidays are Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, and Halloween. Where do you get that? It's in Romans 1. Do you ever wonder why all the rock groups in the world are all Gentile rock groups? You realize you couldn't find a namesake Jewish rock group or a Muslim rock group anywhere in the world. That ever bother you? Why? Because that's what Gentiles do. Here we notice in America, in the NFL, the NBA, or wherever you want to go, half the teams are called Bears, Bulls, Buzzards, Seahawks, uh, Lions, Dolphins, uh, uh, Cougars, Eagles. I mean, you ever wonder why? That's Romans chapter 1. When you want to buy a Gentile car, you buy a Mustang, you buy a, you buy a, a Marlin, you buy a Cougar, you buy a Firebird, you buy an Impala. Go over to Japan and watch what Shem builds with Toyota, Mitsubishi, and all the other. You won't find any animal names there. That's Gentiles. And then when Gentiles want to produce a really superior hot car that dominates the scene, what do Gentiles do? They build the fastest, meanest, baddest car that can whip anybody and take on everybody, and then they put a logo on it that says SS. Big smile, big smile. Where'd that concept come from? I know a Gentile one time who wanted to build the biggest, baddest nation in the world and whip everybody. And he did it with a SS logo. Gentiles, this can't all get it together. I mean, you just can't. It says here in, 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 in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 21, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that when they, that might be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Great verse. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Three verses later it says this, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. That's, G that's Gentiles. That's why you don't see the Jews and the Muslims having rock bands named after animals. That's why they're football teams, and that's why it just, you know, that's why Gentiles, 2,000 years ago in Rome, throughout Europe, they built big coliseums, forerunners of our modern day football stadiums. And the gladiators went out on the field. And you know what those gladiators did? <clears throat> they hacked each other to death with the applause of everybody and the cheer of everybody. Some of those games went on for a month. And when they ran out of gladiators, <clears throat> they got Christians. And they butchered Christians because Gentiles love to see blood, guts, and gore. 
That's why I'm telling you, man, that's Gentiles' mindset. I was preaching one time at a youth rally. <clears throat> Must have been <clears throat> a thousand kids out there. <clears throat> and it was at a theme park. They flew me out to preach at a theme park, you know, and I had to preach like at 7 o'clock to them. And they had all day to run around the park, you know, like worlds of fun. <clears throat> and uh, they got them together there and had supper, you know. Then they had a program. <clears throat> you know what the program was? Remember that guy, his name was Gallagher, that used to smash the fruit all the time? Well, this is when he was really big. <clears throat> so they had all the, and I, and I got to preach after this. And I'm never without a message. My Bible says, be instant, in season, out of season. I can have a message, pray, and know what I want. God can throw me to play from the side plate, and I'm ready to go. I'm sitting down there, <clears throat> and I'm watching this thing. <clears throat> And all these kids are down there, and this guy comes up with his big sledgehammer, and he's he playing like he's Gallagher. And they're putting fruit down there, and people are just absolutely, absolutely, absolutely screaming and going nuts every time he busted a watermelon or cantaloupe or eggs. I mean, the place was at a fever pitch. And this went on for 40 minutes. Now, I'm sitting up here, and I'm, the coach is calling in a play from the sidelines because I'm mad now. I'm mad at a number of people. First of all, myself for coming here. I traveled all wherever I went. I forget even where I was up in Boston someplace. I traveled all the way to get there, and here I am in the most ridiculous situation in my life. Then I'm mad at the guys who were putting this off because they ought to know better. To put some kind of fruit loop up there with a sledgehammer, killing other fruit loops, uh, and then I'm going to get up and preach afterwards? So now I'm really mad. So I got, when he got done, cleaned up all the fruit, introduced me, I walked up to the pulpit, absolute silence. I said, you know what? It just struck me strange. And maybe this is just my over-imagination here, but I just do believe the last 45 minutes you guys were screaming and yelling about somebody up here, and almost said some idiot up here, I didn't know I caught myself before I said that. <coughs> somebody up here beating on fruit and killing it, you guys were screaming. And somebody comes up and opens the living word of God and the living God and it's just a silent as a turkey farm day after Thanksgiving. Then I'm going to go to my message, my new message. I say, you know what? Let me show you where the body of Christ is so screwed up today, kids. And we'll use this as an object lesson. 2,000 years ago, they put him in here, and they all screamed in there like you did when they killed your forefathers. But we're more, we're much more in tune with things now. We just do it killing fruit. I said the concept's the same. Because Gentiles love that. They were so fired up by somebody smashing fruit. But when I stood up at the pulpit, opened up the living word of God from the living God, Everybody went deaf and dumb. You know why? That's Gentiles. That's Gentiles. That's Gentiles. So I preached them a different message than the one I had. Mine worked, the one I preached worked better than the one I had anyhow. But I'm telling you, that's Romans chapter 1. Now when you come to Romans chapter 2, <coughs> you find the Jewish mindset. You understand why Gentiles operate the way they operate. There's a five-point outline there in chapter 1. It simply goes like this. It's so easy. God is revealed, chapter 1, verse 18 and 20. 
then God is rejected, chapter 1, verse 21. Then God gets replaced, chapter 1, verse 23. Then God gets reviled, that means they hate Him in chapter 1, verse 25. And then the fifth thing, God gives them a reprobate mind. Five in your Bible is the number of death. You want to know why America's got the problem they got? Because America's got a reprobate, reprobate mind. Gentiles worship the creature, not the Creator. And that's where we're at. Now in chapter 2, the Jews have the same mindset. <coughs> and you get how they think and what they do and how they think. And in chapter 1, you get to find the mind of the Gentile. In chapter 2, you get to find the mind of the Jew. The chapter basically teaches this. The Jews look at the Gentiles as inferior to them and reject them and their Christian teachings and their worldly ways. But in their own blind, prideful attitude, <coughs> they themselves have lost God, just not for the same reason. The key in chapter 2 is verse 17 and 19. It says, Behold, <coughs> Paul talking to him, Thou art called a Jew, and rest in the law, and maketh thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approveth the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that thy, thou, thyself art a guide and a blind and the light to them that are in darkness, the Gentiles. And then he goes on down and says, but you guys are basing everything on what you have outwardly and nothing inwardly. He says, you think, you think you're better than the Gentiles because you've been circumcised on a pertinent part of your anatomy and they haven't. He said, don't you understand that circumcision on the outside means absolutely nothing if you haven't changed on the inside? So chapter 1, we see the Gentiles are in a mess and the reason why they are and all the ramifications for our own country and our own society. And then in chapter 2, you see why the Jews are in the mess that they're in because of their arrogant attitude that because the oracles of God were delivered to them, that they are superior, and because they are outwardly Jews, that that makes them better than the Gentiles. And God simply says, your arrogance overwhelms you, and your arrogance has brought you to the place where you're blinded because you think just being religious on the outside is the answer, when in truth, it's what's on the inside. Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. The, begin, the great chapter that begins to define for us the understanding of what it means to be justified by faith, by receiving God's righteousness. You see, he says in chapter 1 that the Gentiles follow their conscience. He tells you in chapter 2 that the Jews will follow the law. And he tells you in chapter 3 and 4 that neither one of those will merit salvation because the only way you've got to get salvation is by getting God's righteousness. And Romans chapter 3 and 4 shows you the model for getting God's righteousness by faith. And that's why you find down there in Romans chapter 3, verses 10, verses 23, the great verses that we use in winning somebody to Christ. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of our righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. Those are great verses that we use in winning people to Christ. But in the context, it's showing that the Jew and the Gentile, one who follows his conscience, the other one who follows the law, it doesn't make any difference. All of their righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God, and all have sinned and come short of, God, short of God's glory. That's why you have to get justified by through faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. And of course, the great study there is Abraham. Great study is Abraham in the Old Testament getting God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, it simply says that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And that's why the great man to study, to study that, along with Romans 3 and 4, is Abraham. All right, in chapter 5, 
the great chapter that defines for us justification by faith. Romans 5, 1 says, great verse. A verse you need to memorize at some point in your life. <clears throat> it says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Great verse. Great verse. This is where you'll find the beginning of the great doctrine on your standing and state, the concept of standing for Christ versus your state. This is where you'll find the great concept of uh, the term in the book of Romans, peace with God versus peace of God. In the Bible, when you find the peace with God, it's always talking about salvation. When you find the peace of God, it's talking about your Christian walk. That's why when you get to Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, it runs it right back to Romans. When you made peace with God, you got saved. After you get saved, because you are saved, you get the peace of God. Great concept. Chapter 6, to find the great doctrine of being dead in Christ after you're saved. It's incredible. It's an incredible thing. It explains how a saved man can't be a sinner anymore after he's saved, even though he still sinned. Boy, if that isn't a contradict in terms. But that's what the Bible teaches. There is a way in the Bible, when you lay out the doctrines, that once you get saved, you can't sin anymore, even though you're still a sinner. And still do sin. <laughs> Go try that one out for a while. You know what? That's why I don't like the book of Romans. The book of Romans beats me up. Ask the average saved person. Next person you meet. Give them the Romans test. Ask them how in the world after you get saved, if you still sin, how in the world God can have fellowship with you when God can't have fellowship with anything that's sinful? Let them try to explain the process. Well, let me tell you something. If you don't understand the process, at this point in your life, if you're a young Christian, that's my job. If you're an older Christian, I don't know what to tell you. You should have learned it by now. Romans chapter 6 talks about what it means to be baptized into Jesus' death. And we're not talking about water. Chapter 6 explains how a saved man, as I said, can't live in sin after he's saved, even though he still sins. You chew on that one for a while. It defines the term dead in Christ. So when you read over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, that you're dead and your life is hid with Christ, you'll know what it means. And it'll define those Bible doctrines that are so crucial to the church of you understanding not just the terminology of being saved, but what really happened to you when you got saved. And the answer to that question is how you can be a saved person Save from your sins, yet still sin, yet not be accounted and judged for sin anymore in the judgment seat of Christ, how that works. What, and the answer is, what really got, the answer to that is this. Not all of you got saved. I'm talking to everybody. The day you got saved, not all of you got saved yet. Oh, what new heresy is this? It's a trap play up the middle to see how stupid you really are if you really know your Bible. I'm saying this. When you got saved, all of you didn't get saved. Part of you got saved. That's why when you get to the next chapter, you find there's two adoptions and there's two resurrections. Now, before you have a canapy fit with that and you just think, what heresy is this and what church am I in? You better go back home and get on your knees and pray over the book of Romans. For you don't know what you're talking about. How in the world can a holy God have anything to do with me when I still sin? 
Oh, I know, you don't sin anymore. I forgot that. Yes, that's right. That's the answer. That'll work. It's all in the concept of being baptized into Jesus' death. It's all in the concept of being dead in Christ, and your life is hid uh, with Christ. It's all in the concept of what happens that day when you got saved and what took place inside your body that God separated. Saved one part of you, didn't save the other part of you. And that's why you have an old nature and a new nature. And that's why the book of Romans is so vitally important. If you don't understand what happened to you the day you got saved, the devil's going to have a field day with you. Romans chapter 7, probably one of the greatest defining chapters in all the Bible on how the Old Testament law doesn't affect me anymore. You read in Romans chapter 7 verse 1, it says this, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, <clears throat> how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as she liveth. This is law of Deuteronomy chapter 24, by the way. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no more an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now in this great chapter, he starts out by explaining to the New Testament body of Christ, you and me, the problem we just talked about in the last chapter. How can somebody be saved be saved from their sins, <laughs> yet still sin. And God fellowship with that who has no tolerance for sin. The answer begins not only in the last chapter, carries on in chapter 7 and gets all wound up in chapter 8 and tells you the whole line. But here you see this. You see the, the death. You see the effect. You see the great defining chapter. Now that I am a Christian, how does the Old Testament law affect me? Here's how it goes, briefly. When you come down through down here and you read about this woman being married to a husband, that woman is a picture of your soul. That husband is a picture of your flesh. In an unsaved scenario, in an unsaved man or unsaved woman, the, the soul and the flesh are stuck together just like that. Just like an unsaved man and an unsaved woman being married together. And that's why she's bound by the law to that man in the Old Testament scenario as long as she lives, or as long as he lives. And if she leaves him and marries somebody else, she commits adultery. The only way that she can be free to marry somebody else is through the husband dying. Here it comes. The day I got saved, remember now, remember, 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 the woman is my soul, the husband is my flesh. So the day I got saved, God separated my flesh from my soul killed the husband, dead and trespassed to sin, separated him, and now I'm free from the law to marry somebody else. Who am I going to marry? Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead, there's my flesh, to the law, by the body of Christ, I got saved, that ye should be married to another. Who's this? Even to him that is raised from the dead that should bring forth fruit unto God, the Lord Jesus Christ. See how it works? That's the picture. You're not under the law anymore. And because you're not under the law anymore, it changed with the church. That's what he's trying to lay out this great doctrine of justification, sanctification, 
Justification by faith. This is how God can fellowship with me, even though I'm still a sinner. My flesh is dead. It's freed from my soul through an operation made with God by God made without hand. Now my soul is free to marry another. Christ. The day I got saved, we got married. My flesh is dead. And that's why, well, we'll see it when we get to the next chapter here. Chapter 7 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible that shows you how to deal with your children at the time of salvation. This fabled concept of age of accountability. There ain't no fixed age of accountability. Every child's different. But Romans chapter 7 shows you the intimate detail how the law affects your children. Before they hit that age, shows you what happens when they come to that point that they understand and shows you how to deal with it. It is the greatest defining chapter anywhere in the Bible. And when your parents want to know that thing, I don't have time to do it this morning, I'll be glad to sit down to you and show you how to do it. Show you how you know. That ain't left a chance. Paul takes that thing in Romans chapter 7 and shows every mom and dad exactly what to look for, what they should know, how that thing works, and know that that thing doesn't work on some magical age. He gives you exactly. It isn't about when your child knows right from wrong. Get that out of your mind. Romans chapter 7 sets the doctrine for the church that not only affects you and your life, but runs to the life of your children. But Romans chapter 7 will show you how much you don't know about the Bible. Romans chapter 7 is a great defining chapter in verses 14 through 25 on the old nature versus the new nature. You see, that's what happens once you get married to another and your flesh gets separated from your soul. Now you have two natures. You have an old nature and a new nature. That's why we, then we come to Romans chapter 8. Oh, Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in all the Bible that talks about your resurrection body. Now, I know that I'm speaking over some of your heads here, and I do that very confidently today because I know that in my relationship with you, if you're serious about the Word of God, you and I are going to work out everything you don't understand today. So I can say what I'm saying. The rest of you that don't care, that's your problem. I've told you before, you want to learn the Bible, I'll give you every time, ounce, inch that you need to learn it. I'll work with you however. If it doesn't work out for me, I'll put somebody else with you that will. But the bottom line is, here you can learn whatever you want to learn by as much as you want. As much as you want. So I'll be brash and I'll say some things over your head and you'll say, well, I didn't get all of that. No, but if you keep coming and you keep growing, you will. You never grow without stretching. And if I just bring you in here and let you be brain dead for the hour that I have you for and just give you everything and you don't have to think for yourself, then I'm not going to do you any good. You have to think, you have to stretch it, you have to ponder it, you have to wonder about it, and then in the process, you either dig it in yourself and you can't find it, or you bring it to me on Thursday night, you bring it to me in our time together throughout the week, and you say, Bob, I don't understand this. Can you break it down? When I break it down, you walk out of there, and suddenly somebody just turned on spotlights in your life, and you understand it now. That's how it's supposed to be. That's supposed to be. That's why I don't give you everything all the time. I'm not going to just hand feed you all the time. I'm not going to treat you like a little baby that I give you a little spoon and put it into your mouth. I'm going to throw things out there just to see what you do with them. See what your attitude is about it. I'm a great attitude checker. I got a little attitude meter. I carry with me all the time. When I come to Romans chapter 8, greatest chapter in the Bible to define your resurrection body. I'll tell you another thing I never figured out about Christians. This always bothered me. I mean, I know the answer, but I just, it just, I don't understand why. Now, we all went on vacation. Some of you got vacations planned. I know what it's like because we're going on vacation. Our whole family's going to Disney World this summer. And I'm looking forward to that. But you know what it is at my house? 
And I know it's pretty much the same at your house. You've ever been on a really big vacation or whatever, or even a small vacation. But I know it is at our house. We're going in July, isn't it? We started planning before Christmas. I know what kind of plane I'm on. I got my seat number. I know where I'm staying. I know what restaurants are down there. I know how much it's going to cost. I know, especially the bottled water. <laughs> I'll tell you that joke. <laughs> no, I better not. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, it's, I, we, know where, we know where to rent a car. We know, we know what time we're going to get in. We know what we're going to do. We got, they got the, uh, we're not even there yet. We are, at this point, we are two months out plus, and yet we got the schedule down. We know what we're doing. We got the clothes list already laid out. We know everything we're going. We got everything thought through, laid out, put out, and all we're doing is going down to Orlando, Florida. And yet God's people do the same thing all the time. And yet, you know what? You're going on the greatest trip that you ever went on in your life. It's going to last you for all of eternity. And God's people, for some reason, just don't give a flip about finding out about it. Now, I don't understand that. You ask the average Christian what their glorified body is going to be like, and they go, oh, I don't know. I never thought of it. I guess I'm going to shine a lot. <laughs> what are you going to do when you go to heaven? Well, I'm going to, I, I, you know, I, gee, I, you know, that's a good question to ask that. You know, I, I guess you get wings and you get a, a issue harp, you know, and you, and you float around up there. And somebody real spiritual say, well, brother, I'm going to stand around the throne of God. We're just going to praise the Lord and thank God for all of eternity. Well, that's going to get old after a while, not to be irrespectful. But you know what? If you think, it, it, God couldn't think any farther than that. I mean, God went through 6,000 years of man's history, went through the fight he had with the devil, knocked the universe upside down, did everything that he did, and when we finally get to heaven all again, God just said, well, I, for, I don't know what else we're going to do now. Why don't we just all stand around and hold hands and sing Kumbaya? <laughs> God's got a better plan than that. And may I allow to say something to you? Maybe it'll spare you a little pain that jumps you to strike. Shame on you for not knowing. Shame on you for knowing more about your vacation, <clears throat> where you're going, what you're doing in life, than what God's got planned for you to return. Shame on you. I love you, but shame on you. <clears throat> shame on you. I mean, God went to the expense of doing everything because He loved you, <clears throat> has the greatest thing planned for you, has got you a glorified body. There's a reason why you've got to have one, by the way. The reason why this one won't work anymore. Yet the average child of God, if I told him what your glorified body would be like, they'd have a heart attack and think I was a heretic. That's the only thing that always bothered me. You don't know what's going on up there. And because somebody does, you think they're wrong and you're right when you don't even know what's going on up there. I'm telling you, man, God's got a plan. He's got something for you. And there's a reason why he's got a glorified body. There's a reason why it's called the body of, you're called the body of Christ. Well, when you come to Romans chapter 8, you got the great chapter. I can't help it. You don't know where you're going, what you're going to do. I think the most... <clears throat> somebody said one time, I heard a preacher say one time, he said, well, when you get to heaven, <clears throat> you know anything about church history... Probably only most of the ones that are going to be up there are going to be the Bible-believing Baptist line. And I thought to myself, yeah, and they're going to probably be the most confused one for the longest time. I mean, the rapture took place this afternoon. Most of God's people are walking up around there not even figuring out. You know what Romans chapter 8 teaches me? It's a great thing, boy, I'll tell you. This is a terrible thing to say, but it's true. When I read Romans chapter 8, especially the first eight verses, it teaches me that the greatest, one of the greatest unknown truths in all the Bible, that most Christians are God's enemies, according to Romans chapter 8. 
Most God's people who He died for and saved are God's enemies. You see, you think it's God's, you're a man's God's enemy because he sins. That shows how little you know about Romans. That Bible lays out that, uh, well, you know what, I am not going to get into it this morning. I am not. Romans chapter 8. There's two resurrections in Romans chapter 8. One spiritual and one physical. You got saved one time, you got your spiritual resurrection. But your body's waiting for the physical one. That's what I meant a little while ago when I said you're not completely saved when you're saved. You are, but you're not. I mean, you're already seated in heavenly places, but you still got your flesh to contend with, you see? The day you got saved, God resurrected you spiritually, but then He separated you out, you still got your flesh to deal with. Your flesh ain't going to heaven. I got news for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, when you put it all together, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. We don't need that verse to understand that. And then you find there's two adoptions in the Romans chapter 8. There's a spiritual adoption, the day where you cry, Abba, Father, and you get saved spiritually. And a little bit later on, there's another adoption to wit, the redemption of your body. The day you got saved, you got spiritually adopted and spiritually resurrected. That's your new nature. And your flesh now is dead and you're free to marry another. But if you don't reckon that flesh dead, it's going to give you problems because that flesh you're stuck with is going to give you all kinds of problems until you get your glorified body. Someday you're going to get a glorified body. Anybody know why? There's a reason why God gives it to you. There's a reason why you got to have it. It all fits into the plan of God. Oh, Romans. Romans will beat us up. Then Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. Paul's great doctrinal statements on the nation of Israel and how we as God's people, the church, in light of the Jews' rejection of Christ in the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how we should view them. I'm going to break these three down for you real simply. Chapter 9 shows Paul's burden and God's burden for the Jews. There's some great lessons in Romans chapter 9. One of the lessons is that God gets the glory even out of our failure. One of the greatest things that comes out of Romans chapter 9 is that God's going to get honor and glory out of everything in this world. And you better learn that lesson. God's going to get honor and glory. He demands it because He's holy. And God will get honor and glory out of everything on planet earth. You either give Him honor and glory by going with Him and letting Him use you. Or He'll get honor and glory by you going against Him and Him Busting you up alongside the head and everybody else saying, wow, watch out for God. Look what he does. He'll get it. And of course, that's what Romans chapter 9 says he does with a Jew. Romans chapter 9 simply shows you that God's going to get honor and glory out of the nation of Israel at the end. And yet, even though that nation of Israel has rejected, God's still going to get honor and glory out of it because God gets honor and glory out of everything. And the practical lessons to you and me are quite extensive. Then we get chapter 10. Chapter 10 lays out the Gentiles get in because you and I get in. The church gets in because the Jew rejected. So we're not to get too high-minded about that. We realize that we get in because the Jews got out temporarily. So we see how we get all this goes together. Chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 shows you the whole package. Chapter 9 shows you how the Jews rejected and God gets honor and glory. Chapter 10 shows you how the Gentiles come in. That's why it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, winning people to Christ. Chapter 9 and 10, uh, 10 verse 9 and 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath ridden him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
We use that all the time, but in the context it's talking about the Gentiles getting in because the Jews rejected. Then in Romans chapter 11 we see how we get in. We see the story of the natural branches, Israel, the root, Christ, and the wild olive tree being grafted into that tree, the Gentiles. And you see in the last part of that chapter the greatest passage in all of the Bible on the restoration of the nation of Israel, and how we as the church should view it lest we be wise in our own conceits. And many of God's people today have no clue what's going on to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is to God as His wife. The body of Christ is to Christ as His church, His bride. Romans chapter 12, we've got to move along here. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, the great definitive chapter on our service for God versus our ministry for God. 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect Word of God. Great chapter. Great chapter. Shows you that Christian service has to do with your attitude. Christian ministry has to do with the job that you do. Most God's people never understand the difference. We're going to see the difference just a little bit here. Chapter 13, the great doctrinal statement on our government and higher powers. Basically, chapter 13 tells you and I how to live as a godly Christian in an ungodly nation. Two Thursday nights ago on, on uh, our Bible study, I gave you the definitive verses that shows you God's view of the United States and all the other nations on planet Earth. Romans chapter 13 shows you and I and gives us insight as a Christian and how you and I, as a godly Christian, loving the God and the Word of God, get along in an ungodly United States of America or anywhere else. One of the key references to that would be Psalms 9.17, which says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. One thing you want to remember is this. God judges nations just as surely as He judges people. There's a great lesson in there. We're going to teach you in time. My goal today is not to give you all the book of Romans, but give you the outline of Romans, that the rest of our time together, till Jesus comes back, now we're going to work some things. Right now I got a group I'm working with every other Saturday in, in basic uh, discipleship and teaching. We're going to come along with that for a while and then I'm going to, I'm going to put a break on it and, I'll, and take a couple weeks off and I'm going to take, I'm going to take any, all the, leave the ladies out for a week and I'm going to take all the men and I'm going to talk about, bring them over to my house that want to come. Anybody can come and we're going to work on some hard line issues to bring this thing up. In other words, I'm not just giving you one line here. I'm going to build multi-levels into your life as we're going. I've got a plan that will work incredibly well. And it will work in a, in a situation we're in. And it will work just fine. And then I'm going to next week, I'm going to take all the ladies that want to come. And I'm going to work on that. We're going to, we're going to build into your life the things that you need to see and understand. We're going, to, we're going to take a break from the natural things. We're going to switch it up a lot. We're going to, we're going to look at hard-line things. And we're going to search through our church at this young age of where we're at. And we're going to find the men and the women that have the ability and the wherewithal of service versus end ministry. And we're going to fine-tune those things for you as we build into your life the doctrinal concepts. And the book of Romans is going to be a lot of it we have to deal with. We'll have time and we will go through these things, if not one-on-one, -on -one, if not on Thursday night with the questions and our other things that we're going to focus on. I have a whole multi-concept that I want to put into the people that want to really learn. Chapter 14, great chapter on our liberty in Christ. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. What's that mean? It simply says this, that uh, as a New Testament Christian, we're not under the law. So basically, unless it's something that is clearly defined in the Word of God as sin, there's a lot of latitude we have. But just because we have a lot of latitude doesn't mean we can do it. And, there, and boy, this is a great chapter on shows you how that a child of God, it begins to move into the area of, 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 of service and understanding what it means to be a minister and dealing with people. And these will be chapters that we will deal with very heavily as we go on. And just because you're a Christian, you know, you, doesn't mean you have the right to do whatever you want to do. And in this chapter, it talks about the relationship and the responsibility we have to other Christians. But, oh, i got to give you this. Probably two of the greatest verses in all the Bible for a child of God. Chapter 14, verse 7 and 8. Something that you always want to remember. Something you always want to remember when you think about screwing up as a Christian. Every time I think about doing something stupid, this verse comes into my brain. doesn't necessarily mean I don't do it, but I think about it. Chapter 14, verse 7 and 8. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Always somebody watching your life, folks. You may not know it. You may not think it. Somebody's always watching your life. If you've made the profession that you're a child of God, I promise you, somebody's always watching your, li watching your life. None of us liveth to himself. No man dieth to himself. He says in the next verse, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Great two verses. Two of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Chapter 14 is a great chapter on defining our liberty in Christ. Just because we're not under the law doesn't mean we can go hog wild and do what we want to do. There's some restrictions there. And we'll talk about that. Then chapter 15. Chapter 15 is probably the greatest defining chapter for me on what it what a, what a shout of God should be that's going to serve God. And uh, all down through here, there's, there's uh, six things that a strong Christian needs to do and needs to be. And uh, verse 1 is a key verse for me. Verse 1 says, We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. That one verse, to me, is worth all the money in the world. That one verse... Is the, is the litmus test for what I look for in a young man or a young lady to, to, to serving God, working in the ministry. You know, I know there's a lot of you right there now that we're working with, and you're coming up, and you're growing, and, uh, you know, you're enjoying it. You're learning the Bible. I see an excitement in your lives that uh, is quite incredible. Well, let me just say something to you, and this comes all the way through the Bible. It just is about how much you know the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that the church at Corinth had some knew the Bible too, but knowledge puffeth up. There has to be a balance in your life, and that balance is your attitude of taking the hits and enjoying the hits that you have to take. Romans chapter 15, verse 1 is the key verse. It is the thing that I look for in every young man, every young lady. It is the key, as far as I'm concerned, it determines whether you where you go in ministry. Ye then being strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. You know why? Because Christ was strong and we were weak. And when he came down on that cross, he bore my infirmities when he didn't have to. There are times in the ministry when you have to take the hit, and you have to learn to like to take the hit. There's times that you're going to have to take, say, it's your fault when it isn't. There's times that you're going to, for the cause of Christ, you're going to have to take the blast and for God's honor and glory. And that is determined, as far as I am concerned, where you're at. And I want you to understand it, every one of you. I want you to understand that is the key deciding verse that I look for. I don't care what you know about the Bible. I don't care how well you learn it. I don't care how well you learn it. 
To me, learning everything about the Bible and not having the ability to use it is like buying a sleek, fast Corvette for a nine-year-old. The car's fast, it's hot, and it'll move, just like the Word of God. But the kid don't have the mental ability and the spiritual maturity to drive it and take responsibility for it. Same thing. What I look for is your ability, your ability to do for others what God did for you. Take the hit. That's what I look for. That's what I look for. And I'm going to say that a hundred thousand times. In everything that we do, in everything that I'm going to temper that concept with everything. Because if you don't grow up in the Word of God, not just knowing it, but understanding that there's young Christians out there that you have to be smarter than they are. They're going to do dumb things. They're going to say dumb things. They're going to be dumb things. You've got to be smarter than they are. You've got to understand that ye that are strong bear the infirmities of those that are weak. That is the mark of a strong Christian. That's why in this incredibly great chapter, first thing he says, first thing he says, and I'll tell you again, first thing I look for, I look for somebody looking to take the hit for Christ. Putting your, and it says, and not to please yourselves. You don't do it to please yourself. You don't do it to look good. You don't do it so people can look and say who you are. You do it because Christ did it for you. Now, when you're a leader and you're in charge, you take the hit! What you got to do. Six things. Six things. Here they are. Verse 1, you become strength for others. Number 2, verse 2, you deny yourself to please others. That gets self out of the way. Third thing, verse 7, you receive others. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter where they come from. Doesn't matter how they dress. Doesn't matter what they add. Doesn't matter whatever. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You receive them. And the reason why you do that, because you didn't look too hot first time God looked at you. Nor did I. Verse 4, he always admonishes others. Always admonish somebody. Always help somebody. Always edify somebody. If you can't say good something to somebody, don't say anything. Always lift them up. Always look for the good even when they do something stupid. Realize it. Understand it. That's part of it. How many times I've done something absolutely asinine and God has still encouraged me through it in spite of my stupidity. You know what? That's what we're here for. You look for somebody. You look for somebody trying to do what's right. You don't major on what they're doing wrong. You don't major on how they're dressed. You don't major on how they get their hair cut. Major on what they're doing right. Edify them and then God will take care of the rest. Romans will kill you, man. Romans will kill you. Romans will just have you up about 5,000 feet in your big Remax balloon blowing around looking at the world and thinking it's your kingdom and suddenly the air goes out and down you come. Then the fifth thing, verse 27 he ministers to others. Now I want you to see this. Not just spiritually, spiritually, but carnally. What does that mean? Carnally. What's that mean? That means you take care of them physically like you take care of them spiritually. Good example? The shoes. I don't know these people. don't know the church is doing it. But you know what? Bottom line is this. My job is not just to minister spiritually. My, my, my job is to minister physically. Somebody has a tough time. It's my job to help. I find out somebody's struggling, it's my job to help. 
My job to get in there. My job to do something behind the scenes that nobody, nobody has to know about it. It's just a matter of you do it because that's the job. You don't do it and then tell everybody about it. You just do it because that's what a minister does, spiritually and carnally. And the last thing, verse, uh, verse 28, down through there, he prays for others. Prays for others. That's the thing that will destroy a church faster than anything in this world is when you stop praying for me, I stop praying for you, we stop praying for each other. And there's a danger in churches that are good churches. There's a danger in this church because you get so much good Bible. And I don't know, the, I really don't understand the balance other than just good, hard, flat preaching and telling you like it is, letting you like it or lump it. I don't know any other way to do it. But there's a danger. It's like any kid when you spoil them and spoil them and give them all they got and give them this and don't deny them anything and just teach them and teach them and teach them. If you don't have something to balance that thing out, and the only thing I know how to do is good, flat, hard, tearing your hide off sometimes when you come on Sunday. You know what? Because that's what you need. Otherwise, you get spoiled. Otherwise, you get think you're something special. Otherwise, you get thinking of the fact that you're above everybody else. And you don't have to do the other things that everybody else does. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. And you're over here. And you know what? It ain't going to happen. We're all in the same mud pit, slime pit, ugly pit together. And we're all helping each other up. We're all going to hang together. We're all going to hang separately. There isn't anybody in this room, including me, better than anybody else. I don't care what your social class is. I don't care where you come from. I don't care if you, if you have to wear two different colored shoes. I don't make any difference to me. Well, that's a pretty popular thing now, so that's a bad illustration. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> We're in this together. Everybody, everybody hangs together. We have to, we have to build and train people together. Everybody. Everybody gets on board. Everybody that wants, there should be nobody in this room that wants to learn God and have God and learn the Word of God that cannot get to it. That 